welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Sarah Marshall Perry. Wow, what a party. <laughs> what a party indeed. Wow. <laughs> Here we are. All right, so things are heating up. Come elections, talking elections. It is, a fit, I mean, it's kind of been election season in Washington, D.C. for actually longer Forever. than I yeah. care to mention. It's actually like it never ends. But for real, The carousel it's never happening. stops turning merry. It actually doesn't. <laughs> it's my favorite uh, Grace Anatomy reference. <laughs> that's fantastic. But the Iowa caucuses. They are on Monday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the dates I'm trying to keep straight in my Monday, brain. They are on Monday. January 15th. January 15th, MLK Day. What is the difference, Lauren, between an election and a caucus? Great question, Virginia. Oh, God, I'm so glad I, you I, I, I wasn't sure if you were going to ask me. I but... know. It's just so surprising. <laughs> <laughs> so Iowa is different because they hold a caucus. And what a caucus is, is... It's not something that you can just show up to for a couple minutes and leave. It's not, you know, something where you can send a mail-in ballot. This is somewhere where you have to go and participate in the caucus. So every campaign sends a representative to each caucus location. A caucus location can be a school, a church, really any kind of community center. Um, And the people show up and they break up into groups. Like, so you'll have a DeSantis group and a Trump group and a Ramaswamy group and a Haley group and a all the other candidates. And then there will be an undecided group. So all the representatives give speeches. Then the undecided group picks one of the candidates to support. And each group has to hit a threshold of, I think it's like 15, 20 percent. It it varies between um, each caucus. And if that candidate doesn't hit that 15 to 20 percent, then everybody there has to then pick another group. And they do that until you have a majority winner. So interesting. It's very unique. It's such a unique structure. Well, can you imagine going with all your neighbors and community members and, like, standing with who you're going to vote for? Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like it. Yeah. Why Uh, don't we do this in more states? I went in 2012. I went to a caucus in Des Moines, Iowa. That is very cool. Did you really? I did. How'd you find it? Uh, Well, I was there campaigning. Um, I was doing a youth trip for a candidate at the time, and— we finished door knocking and calls, and they were like, why don't we go to caucuses? And I was like, great. And I went to the caucus. It was really cool. That is really cool. Really nice. Fascinating. 12 years ago. That makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't even get me started. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're not allowed to talk about age right now. <laughs> I'm so young. <laughs> A full, what, two years behind Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Lauren, thanks for breaking that down. We're going to be covering it uh, on the Daily Signal podcast. We'll have an episode out on Tuesday morning explaining what happened in Iowa, what the results are, because after Iowa, then comes New Hampshire, then comes South Carolina. And really, what happens? And then those, Super Tuesday. And then Super Tuesday. But, I mean, the the whole country takes note of what happens in those first three states yeah. mm-hmm. and really kind of sets the tone for then what happens on Super Tuesday and... Yeah. whole election. So it's here. Whew, it's here. <laughs> Buckle up. Holy cow. No <laughs> kidding. All right. Well, Lauren, go ahead. Let us know what we have queued up on today's show. 
Up on today's problematic woman, we are pulling on Sarah's legal knowledge to explain why the Supreme Court will decide whether President Trump's name is on the ballot in Colorado. Plus, the justices are hearing two big abortion cases this term. We explain the significant these cases hold for women and unborn babies. And the National Park Service reversed course on removing a statue in Pennsylvania after an online outcry. Is it an indicator of Americans' weariness over virtual signaling? We discuss. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right. Let's get to it. The Supreme Court will soon hear a case to decide whether former President Donald Trump's name appears on the ballot in the state of Colorado. So a bit of background here. A group of voters and activists in Colorado claim that Trump can't be on the ballot because of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment states that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the U.S. So these Voters, they claim that Trump's actions on January 6th constitute him taking part in an insurrection and therefore that he's in violation of the 14th Amendment and can't be on the ballot. So Trump is facing almost identical challenges in Minnesota, Michigan, Oregon, Illinois and Massachusetts, Colorado and also Maine have already removed Trump's name from primaries using the 14th Amendment argument. Sarah, you're a legal expert Break this down for us. If you would, what are the key questions here that the Supreme Court is considering in this case? So this is actually one of 34 attempts nationally, some Mm -hmm. that have been completed in which the state Supreme Courts have already ruled, some of which are pending, some of which are in a state of suspension pending the appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm gratified, first of all, that the Supreme Court took the appeal because this is a question of unprecedented national significance. Can a state unilaterally determine that an individual cannot run for the office of presidency within their state by removing them from the ballot. You want to talk about a nakedly partisan attempt to interfere with elections. This is really something, the extent to which we have never seen before. So 35 states virtually guaranteed that the Supreme Court was going to have to step in. So the case is actually called Trump versus Anderson. And the question presented is whether or not the Colorado Supreme Court made a mistake in ordering that Trump be removed from the 2024 presidential primary ballot. So this is a case that's going to have, obviously, widespread significance. This is a very, very crowded, already very contentious election year. We know there are quite a number of candidates that are going to be on the actual ballot for these primaries. And to unilaterally eliminate one of them without giving the people an opportunity to make their own determination at the ballot box 
is really, I mean, again, naked partisan interference with elections is really the way I would I would best summarize this. But here, I believe the law is very clearly on the former president's side. And I, I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will do the right thing in determining that, yes, he can maintain his presence on the ballot and that Colorado overstepped its authority. Do we have a sense of timing how quickly uh, this is going to move through the courts? Because obviously, as we just talked about, we have caucuses happening Monday and followed by all um, both New Hampshire and then South Carolina and then March is Super Tuesday. I mean, this needs to happen quick. Yeah, it does have, have to happen quick. And I think the important thing to remember here is that um, justices are – they are officers who have been appointed to these positions, but they're also human beings. And they also recognize that this is not a case that transpires in a vacuum, that there are very timely issues at stake here. A couple of reasons why I believe ultimately the former president is going to be victorious. First of all, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, right, only applies to individuals who are, right, officers of the United States. It's only ever been applied to members of Congress or state officials. It has never included uh, someone like the president or the vice president who are elected, not appointed, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. No federal court has also convicted Trump of engaging in insurrection or rebellion. And in fact, the Senate acquitted mm -hmm. the former president of that exact thing. Some scholars even say that Section 3 doesn't have not only an enforcement mechanism, which means there's no way for a state to enforce Section 3, that even if it happened, it would have to happen at the federal level. But there are others who even argue that after what are called the Amnesty Acts of the 1870s and 80s, that essentially Section 3 was nullified, that there was absolutely no point because the original purpose had been served. You know, when the country was in its infancy, there were reasons after the Civil War to make sure that the insurrection and rebellion aspect of something that was the bloodiest conflict on American soil still to this date was never repeated. And mm. so they wanted to make sure that there were not these uprisings transpiring between all of the northern and southern states. So the purpose is really at this point utterly fulfilled. I think these activists are really grasping at straws legally. A lot of constitutional scholars feel the exact same thing. And I think this is going to be a decision we see really in very short order. Um, this was a cert grant that came quicker than I thought. But again, we're all sort of hemmed in by how fast the appeal process takes. There is a certain time frame for submission of the, the briefs, reply to the briefs, uh, reply to the reply, docketing of oral arguments. So we still have to follow those. Um, and we've only seen a couple of cases scheduled for oral arguments thus far. So really when we see it is anybody's guess. But I think ultimately this is going to have a ripple effect across, at the very least, 34 other states in the country. And will they have to have 
the, the oral arguments? Like, does it have to be a full Supreme Court case? Or is this something that they can just get together and decide? So that's the difference between what's considered the merits docket, mm-hmm. which is, you know, wide open. We're going to do oral argument, cross-questioning, mm-hmm. all that stuff, or what they call the shadow document okay. uh, docket. And what we're dealing with here is literally the merits case. Mm-hmm. So what they'd have to do is take this up. This wasn't an emergency petition. It didn't happen sort of under cover of night. They're not dealing with one discrete question. This is a major question of national political significance. So they're going to go the whole route. It's going to be oral arguments. It's going to be full briefing. Um, So the faster that that transpires, I mean, we're going to be watching the docket every day and exactly find out what the schedule looks like because it is going to impact this election. But a ruling against Colorado is a ruling against all the other states okay. who've done the same thing. And here's the reason, because the question is the same in all of them. They've all used the same mechanism, and the Supreme Court is the ultimate interpreter of what the Constitution means. That's the last stop. So if the Constitution, if the Supreme Court says the Constitution does not permit a state to unilaterally pull off a presidential primary candidate using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, That's going to be the outcome for the entire country, including the 34 other states who've tried to do the same thing. Mm. Well, Sarah, we are going to continue pulling on your legal knowledge here in a second to talk about two other really big and significant Supreme Court cases that stand to affect unborn babies and moms here in a minute. But first, I want to tell you all about a super fun way that you can stay connected with Problematic Women during the week. Problematic Women is on Instagram. You can catch highlights of our show, reels, inspiring social graphics, and just stay informed on some of the big issues that we as Problematic Women care about by following us on Instagram. You can search for Problematic Women in the Instagram app. Just look for our bright pink logo. Hit that subscribe button. And if you DM us, I will respond to you. So thanks for those who have uh, DM'd with suggestions for Problematic Women of the Week or um, other ideas. Really appreciate you doing that. And feel free. You can always uh, send us your ideas for Problematic Women of the Week. All right, Sarah, back to it with SCOTUS. Yeah. Wow. You know, I think this docket keeps getting more and more interesting. We started out at the beginning of the term and we saw a lot of cert petitions on things like Chevron deference, right, which is great nerdy legal speak for can an executive agency make its own interpretation of a rule if it finds that rule to be ambiguous, So big questions on administrative law, civil procedure, criminal law. But, man, we're back to the social and cultural issues in Mm. force, not the least of which is two cases specifically relative to abortion. Now, we don't go to the merits of the abortion issue itself or a state's ability to regulate abortion. That was the question in Dobbs. What we do see now is two federal agencies making Attempts ultimately to restrict what the states are doing and shoehorn in their own agendas when it comes to abortion. So, of course, we've talked a little bit uh, on this program before about the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus FDA. This is the FDA's approval of uh, Mifepristone back in the year 2000. Now, this case came out of the Fifth Circuit. The uh, Fifth Circuit said, listen, you're time barred because there's a statute of limitations. It's gone on too long for the original approval. But what we will do is say that the FDA overstepped its boundaries 
in 2016 and 2020 with the loosening restrictions on access to the abortion pill. So the Supreme Court is going to say, listen, did the FDA do the right thing and just arbitrarily making it easier to get the abortion drug during COVID and arbitrarily saying you don't need a doctor appointment, you don't need a face-to-face appointment or a follow-up, you don't need a pregnancy test or an ultrasound. And what they did was systematically begin removing some of the safeguards that were in place on a drug that's proven to have complication rates much higher than surgical abortions even. So it's also responsible for 50% of the abortions in the country, which is a significant number. So it's more dangerous, it's more accessible, and it's more popular for individuals wanting an abortion. We really have to make sure that the health and safety of young women and girls has to be protected. The FDA's stated mission is protecting public health. They didn't even do the requisite studies on the complications involved with these particular pills. So this is a big question on agency authority. Remember, we've talked a lot about what an agency can do and what an agency can't do. And boy, under this administration, that's a question that keeps coming up over and over again. And the Supreme Court's going to be asked, Were the 2016 and 2020 changes to access for this abortion pill, were they legally appropriate? Did the FDA follow the law or was their action what's called arbitrary and capricious? In other words, we really want to make it more accessible. So we're not really going to make a legal rationale, perform the requisite studies, do a cost-benefit analysis. We're just going to unilaterally say – Hey, you don't need a doctor follow-up anymore. You don't need an ultrasound or a pregnancy test. And we'll mail these through, you know, the U.S. postal system so that you can get them at home and take an abortion at home. We've already heard of horror stories of these individuals who were taking these abortion pills at home, suffering incredible consequences just in the first year alone. There were multiple deaths from taking the exact same medication that the Biden administration is making easier to get now. They're safer than a Tylenol. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I'm, you know, I, if you believe that, I've got some swampland in Arkansas to say. <laughs> so the other case that we're seeing that just was granted uh, cert, just granted review, and I did not in a million years think they would take up the abortion issue not just once, but twice, they took up a pair of cases, consolidated cases. One is Moyle versus United States, and the other one is Idaho versus United States. Now, if you remember early on after the Dobbs decision, and this was a matter simply of weeks, the Biden administration came out with guidance that said under EMTALA, that's the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, Anybody who presents to your emergency room who wants an abortion and it's considered a an emergency situation because it's medically necessary, you have to give them an abortion. In other words, a way to turn emergency rooms into elective abortion clinics. That doesn't pass the straight face test, and mm. it never has. I will tell you, EMTALA was passed back in the 80s, and the purpose of EMTALA is to make sure hospitals don't turn away indigent or uninsured patients, Mm -hmm. right? You don't want a homeless individual showing up in cardiac arrest and going, we're going to turn you away because you can't pay your bill. The Hippocratic duty is do no harm. And so EMTALA was basically a way of saying to hospitals, guys, you have to take the people who come to you, whether or not 
they're able to pay if they're in an emergency situation. Uh-huh. Abortion is not an emergency. No. We know it's not an emergency. This never passed the straight face test. So the question here in these set of cases is whether the Supreme Court needs to essentially pause a federal court decision coming out of Idaho enforcing Idaho's what's called Defense of Life Act. And that bars abortion in almost every simple situation except for the life of the mother. And a district court, a federal district court had said, Matt, we feel like this is preempted by EMTALA. So that question is now at the Supreme Court. Does this guidance from the Biden administration on emergency rooms as abortion clinics, is that bigger? Does it preempt a state law protecting the unborn? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, um, it does not preempt it. So spoiler alert, (laughs) that's what the answer is going to be. But big, big case, because we know this administration has gone nuts with its informal guidance. They have used every which way they possibly can to try to get abortion into the hands of Sarah everyday Sarah explained women. it to me yesterday as playing whack-a-mole with the Biden administration. It, is. it absolutely <laughs> is. Every single agency that could conceivably touch abortion or has any stake in abortion whatsoever has issued guidance saying you're going to get more access to pills. You're going to be able to get abortions in emergency rooms. I'll give you the Veterans Administration. They tried to take the Veterans Administration and make that an elective abortion clinic. It really, you can tell I'm a little passionate about this, (laughs) right, obviously. But um, I'm hopeful that the court will do the right thing. It's an obvious sort of exceeding of administrative authority. It has been from the beginning with these agencies and abortion. Abortion is the left sacred cow. It always has been. Of course, shortly thereafter, coming up on its heels is gender identity, but we won't get into that right now. So there's lots to consider in this term, but between the set of abortion cases and the case on whether or not the Supreme Court, whether or not the Supreme Court of Colorado was mistaken in taking Trump off the ballot, these are big national questions. So the docket's already heating up. I'm surprised the leftists aren't already camping out in front of the Supreme Court. It's too cold. We'll get there. It's It's too cold. cold. (laughs) Virginia's right. That's exactly it. And today, you know, a little rainy, so we decided not to do it. in D.C. Yeah. It's it's coming. It's coming. (laughs) Well, Sarah, thank you so much for breaking that down. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about a situation that is giving me flashbacks to 2020. So controversy over statues. We have not heard much about conflict over statues in a while, the craziness that happened in 2020. I thought it had stopped, but apparently it hasn't stopped. So last week, the National Park Service announced that it was removing a statue of the state's founder, William Penn, from a Pennsylvania park. The statue of Penn sits in uh, Welcome Park. Such a nice name for Mark. <laughs> you Welcome would like that, park. Virginia. <laughs> it's nice. Well, oh, so apparently in doing park. research, <laughs> I think his ship that he came over on was called Welcome Fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. Um, So the park is in Philadelphia. It's where William Penn's house used to be. So a quick background first on William Penn before we get into why exactly the National Park Service claimed they wanted to remove this statue. William Penn arrived in America in 1682. He was incredibly religious. He was a very devout Quaker. And the Quakers 
faced really intense persecution in England, and Penn was actually imprisoned multiple times because of his faith. And the Quakers did, uh, in full disclosure, believe some controversial things. So one way or another, but Penn was very uh, dedicated to the cause of religious freedom. He was a strong advocate of religious freedom. So according to the Bill of Rights Institute, King Charles II offered Penn a title to a large, uh, large expanse of land in the New World to pay off a substantial debt that the crown owed the Penn family. The Penn family was a very prominent family. So this was an opportunity for Penn. This was the opportunity he needed to live out his faith the way he wanted to in a new world and to bring others with him to do the same. And so that's what he did. Furthermore, after arriving in America... Penn and the Quakers refused to take any land unless the Indians agreed to it. And according to the Bill of Rights Institute, uh, they write that during the first couple of years, Penn purchased land from multiple Indian tribes. The land uh, was honestly bought rather than stolen from the Indians. And it's worth noting uh, that Penn didn't realize that these peaceful transactions were being uh, aided by forces beyond his control, according to the Bill of Rights Institute, since Europeans had arrived in the New World and brought some disease and uh, conflict with them that may have uh, led certain Indian tribes to be more inclined to form these alliances with uh, with the settlers. But these agreements were completely um, of free will as far as the Indians. They entered into them willingly. There was a, an exchange of money for the land. So this gives a little bit of background on who Penn was, an advocate for religious freedom, and a man who wanted to have honest uh, trade and, and negotiations with the Indian. Back to the statue situation. The National Park Service said that they plan to remove the statue of the state's founder in order to rehabilitate the park and provide a more welcoming, accurate, and inclusive experience for visitors. So the so-called rehabilitation plan for the park also included expanded interpretation of the Native American history of Philadelphia. But after the announcement... The public on social media, they voiced strong opposition to removing the statue, and they made it clear that they didn't want the federal government to remove a statue of their state's founder. Fox News reported that the announced plan to remove the statue faced a torrent of criticism, receiving more than 2,600 comments on social media posts, calling for public comment to be submitted over a two-week period. So it just took a matter really of hours and days to receive all these comments back. So this week then, the National Park Service reversed course. They said the statue would not be removed, and they claimed that the plan to remove the statue was released prematurely and had not been subject to a complete internal agency review. Uh, And they said now that there's no plans to remove the statues. So why do you think that the National Park Service in the first place wanted to remove this statue in Philadelphia of the founder of the state of Pennsylvania. Why does any liberal faction (laughs) want to remove a statue evidencing a historical period in time? My original thinking, and I would be surprised if this wasn't the case, is that they probably got a letter from the very handy Southern Poverty Law Center Mm Um, or from Black Lives Matter, or from Ibrahim X. Kendi's publishing company. Who knows? <laughs> All I know is that they made the right decision. 
And remember, this began after the George Floyd riots, and I'm calling them riots because they were not mm-hmm. protests. They were riots. They weren't peaceful protests. No, <laughs> a little fiery, but mostly, mostly peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta Shout tell out to you, Julio Rose's <laughs> book right there. Pick up a copy. Yep. Yes, <laughs> the the Confederate uh, statutes and monuments were originally targeted, but then it went on to expand to murals and plaques. And it was Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Christopher Columbus and Ulysses Grant, Francis Scott Key, the writer of the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, first of all, A, it shows me American youth doesn't know its history. Um, because, of course, they're being indoctrinated by liberal universities, all of which are, you know, sort of kowtowing to the leftist uh, academic elites, number one, or A, I should say. And B, I think people um, have had it. I think they have had it yeah. with the virtue signaling and the woke orthodoxy and the everything I don't like, I'm going to destroy. Mm-hmm. And I don't agree with you. Therefore, you are a fascist. I, I think we have gotten to the point where the American sort of collective conscience can only take so much. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that it is simmering and ready to boil over. Yeah. Toward a more rational, pluralistic, live and let live approach. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court has issued some great opinions in that respect. We need other branches of the federal government to stand up and do the right thing. And here, as part of the National Park Service, I applaud this park service for Mm -hmm. making the right decision. Reversing course. This story does actually encourage me because I think we can expect more of the same from a very far left federal government that's pushing policies and agendas. Um, But the fact that the American people use their voice to speak out and say, no, 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 we don't want this. It's very, very telling, I think, about the state of where the American people are at, Sarah. Like you said, they've had enough. They're done with the virtue signaling. They're saying this is ridiculous. No more. And that's very encouraging to me. Well, and I think it especially shows how out of step the Biden administration is with the everyday American. I mean, the Middle East is on fire. People can't afford to buy houses. People can't afford to feed their family. And they're worried about a statue in Philadelphia. It's just a complete mess. And I think another really important part of the story is Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and, you know, Mm. turning – it's still hard to call it X.com. But (laughs) people, when they have information – won't make the right decisions, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that was the problem in 2020. And Sarah, like you mentioned, these college kids and and young people, if they're not being indoctrinated on their college campus, they're being indoctrinated on TikTok. Yeah. And when, you, when you're fed false information, you're going to make the wrong choice. Yeah. And so when people saw this, when they saw what was happening and then they read up on William Penn, they're like, wait, this is Don't not what we should be doing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Makes and zero sense. So with access to information and that information being out there and people being able to speak up is so important and why we need to push back against these big tech companies. And it's why every bit of information that the Heritage Foundation puts out, what you put out on your own Twitter account is so important because we need to reach people and tell them the correct information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're getting from the administration. I mean, really, this is this is part and parcel of what we saw 
in January 2021 going forward with this administration. Um, they've they've pushed a victimization narrative. Mm-hmm. They've pushed a white, you know, colonializer narrative. Mm-hmm. They have put a oppressed versus oppressor paradigm in place. They have pushed for everything from abortion on demand to surgically mutilating minor children mm-hmm. at the highest levels of government. And part of all of this has been their sort of reticent approach to not view things from a common sense lens and their liberal and not just liberal, progressive, ultra hard left, progressive, cultural Marxist perspective on things like tear down Confederate monuments or tear down historical plaques or historical murals is no longer playing, I think, with the American public. And thank goodness for that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, stay tuned, because up next, we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission. To deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts, and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Ohio Representative Jenna Powell. Representative Powell serves in the Ohio State House, and she carried the Fairness in Women's Sports Bill that is part of the bill that Ohio Governor DeWine vetoed. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have a quick update. Last week, we talked about this bill on problematic women. We talked about the fact that... Everybody listens. You don't have to... (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I know know all you listeners listened with intently, and you probably took notes, too, while you were listening. Of course. Yeah, of course, because I remember everything we talked about last week. And then watch Sarah's video on the... Yeah, they're just clued in on everything. (laughs) But so essentially, um, the uh, Ohio State House, they put forward uh, and voted on and passed this bill that was going to prevent minors from receiving um, transgender treatments, whether that be surgeries or cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers, and would also protect women's sports. And that's where Ohio Representative Jenna Powell, she had introduced that aspect of the bill. So it was great. And you had it moving forward. And then all of a sudden, Governor DeWine vetoes it. So then at the end of last week, Ohio Governor DeWine, in kind of a bizarre move, issued this executive order that bans surgeries, transgender surgeries on minors, but did not address minors receiving cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers or um, the fact of the women's sports issue. So thankfully, we have a very strong conservative presence in the Ohio um, State House, Ohio legislators, they're moving forward in very, very positive ways. And I really applaud folks like Ohio Representative Jenna Powell, who've put 
a stake in the ground, said I'm going to stand for truth, yeah. mm. even when I have a governor that's not backing me on the issue. Yeah, and that's hard to do. I mean, that kind of pressure, knowing that the executive office in your state, the governor's mansion, is not backing you when you are introducing something like that on a hotly contested issue. That takes real courage and fortitude. I applaud her. I do, too. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it for today. Thank you, Sarah, for being here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) With that, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. So take a minute, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. We're across all podcast platforms, and we love getting your feedback and hearing what you think about the show. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.